uh, in theory, all that's really happened is that, you know, in addition to normal sort of metrics, right, what you've had is you had like really, really uh, theoretically, it will append certain criteria like do you recycle and stuff like this. Like, are you, you know, are you uh, driving your car on the sidewalk? It's like the Great Reset here in in the West, <clears throat> you know, <laughs> taking these ecological and social uh, values into account. So that we can be, we can have stakeholders, not just stockholders. Well, you might, yeah. I mean, you can look. You can be critical of it. Like, if you want to criticize it on that level, it's fine. No, I no, I'm, of- I'm, I'm exposing my, my <laughs> extreme right wing <laughs> paranoia. Go on. The death of God is about the drying up of a horizon of meaning, and of a whole form of human life. Where do we stand in the illusion? It- makes what kind of space are we invited into the material relations between people become social relations between things when we look at toasters corn and tvs we, don't we see still to a large extent live in the interregnum between between worlds if you will or between paradigms not many people in the history of the world have faced that Diet Soap is a Sublation Media podcast. All right. You got your iced tea? That's a bottle of tea you've got there. Let's get her going. All right. So, Conrad Hamilton, you are a a philosopher. Uh, Are you a lecturer already? Are you you teaching? I teach in a a language department in Paris. Okay, so, so there you so go. I, That's just, very- I, I, I just go on and on about, uh, you know, whatever, like, uh, you know, Chinese Marxism or, you know. Uh, and you teach you know, them English. Deleuze, Deleuze, yeah, Deleuze and Guattari on finance capital or whatever, you know. And then at the end of the year, the students are given these automatic exams, you know, but like spot the dog or whatever, you know. Mm-hmm. So they just try to suffer through my, you know, interminable, you know, stupid lectures. And then at the end just <laughs> hopefully hopefully what just the, do the dumb english exam and get it over with right? what so. they're trying to do is listen to you and learn how and learn to understand what you're saying basically right yeah yeah I'll, hopefully hopefully some smidgen of it is retained because uh, i'm not always the best at uh you know uh but one thing you do get is when you're teaching french students you get extremely uh theatrical uh you know because uh, you just have to do anything like i'm never going to be the same i've done this so much i'm never going to be the same as a lecture so you go in the room right you go like Full Matthew McConaughey, like, all right, all right, all right. All right. <laughs> you become like a fucking clown because you're just trying to get people to actually, you know, pay attention to what you're saying. Right? So it's kind of yeah. quite theatrical, too. Right. OK, so you have many credentials. You are, are an accomplished scholar and a fine man. Uh, but around sublation, you're known as our, our uh, a contemporary Stalinist, uh, your in-house Stalinist. <laughs> I like how this title has just been thrust on me. I think <laughs> So, um, which, uh, which, you know, we have a, uh, we're developing a relationship with a contemporary anarchist, um, as well. So maybe we can get the two of you in a room sometime. And at the end, both of these deviations will be dealt with. Uh, well, you had a response to when Chris Catron was on the Sublution Magazine stream with Ashley and I, and specifically, we want to talk about what constitutes or what counts as fascism and, whether or not it's fair to hurl that epithet at uh, the contemporary Chinese state. Uh, and also um, to what degree is there a coherent 
notion of fascism on the left today, whether Chris Catrone has one, whether you have one, whether I have one, I'll be, I'll take the easy Socratic position of saying, I don't know what this is. You know much more than I do. Please explain what is fascism. Yeah, it's a big one to lead in on. Well, you know, again, there has been a certain lack of clarity that's plagued the left in this respect. Um, but, uh, you know, one thing I, I think can be helpful uh, is to uh, listen to what people say about themselves. Right. Because I think people often, you know, to, to a surprising degree, we take this, I think sometimes we take this for granted, right? You can get into this kind of hermeneutics of suspicion and ignore how clear people are about stating mm-hmm. their own purposes. You know, mm-hmm. I, one of the most, uh, of course, destructive, probably the most destructive political figure of the 20th century, Adolf Hitler, he wrote a book. He said what he was going to do. <laughs> right. Um, and people mm-hmm. said, you know, well, no, that'll never happen. You know, of course, it kind of did. Um, but, you know, on a lighter on a on a milder scale, uh, you know, even someone like, uh, you know, Donald Trump. Right. A lot of people were saying, oh, well, you know, his 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 actions will never match up to what he's saying. Right. Um, and I guess the jury's out as to what degree they did. But what's clear is that there was a consistency in tone in terms mm-hmm. of his presidency and in terms of his, his campaigning. Um, so I think it can be good. Or even even what, like uh, Bill Cosby making jokes about date rape. <laughs> right? That's like, you know, listen to women. What about listen to men? Right. There you go. on up to death, <laughs> we will still be searching for Spanish flowers. They say, I have the most loyal people. Did you ever see that? Where I could stand in the middle of Fifth Avenue and shoot somebody and I wouldn't lose any voters, okay? It's like incredible. Uh, you know, there was a quote by Carl Schmidt. I think it was really good about this. That I, I still think if people ask me what fascism is, it'd be really helpful, right? And Schmidt, he says that, um, and I don't know if fascism is the exact word he uses, but he says that, you know, national socialism or our kind of system, you know, our thing, uh, like Cosa Nostra, our thing, right? <laughs> um, you know, it, it comes into being at such a point as, you know, society ceases being a society of uh, atomic liberal individuals. Right. In other words, at such a point as the organization of the left, right, you know, and the strength of labor um, becomes so powerful uh, that it chafes against, right, or, or exploits, if you will, right, um, you know, that individualistic structure and the rights which it bequeaths. Um, and it's at that point um, where society, to defend itself against this existential threat, right, it has to mobilize uh, in a way that is beyond the individual, right, that uses super individual forces, you know, like government, military, police. Uh, mm-hmm. in order to mitigate against that, right? Um, so to me, I think that's one of the best. I and mean, it's a bit vague, obviously, right? And and that can mean different things. But I think as a very general uh, outline, I think that can be very helpful. Hmm. Okay. So let me see if I understand what you're saying. The, the For something to be fascist, uh, the, the, the first, like, most essential aspect of a fascist society is one in which the individual the liberal bourgeois individual the free subject is no longer 
uh, either uh, the primary force in society uh, and nor a protected uh, category in society. Not that it's not a protected category. In fact, more that the very nature of its protection is that its protection, the protection of the individual becomes cover for the organization of the left, right? The uninhibited organization of the left in a way that threatens to challenge the status quo. Because workers' organizations are not individuals, right? You know, labor unions, communist parties, socialist parties, mm -hmm. and so on. These aren't individuals. They're collective organizations that have the power to transform society, right? Um, so it's at that point where, you know, you have to kind of, the, the idea, you know, according to Schmidt, you have to kind of upend the table, right? Um, and you have to develop uh, a reactionary form of collective organization. Again, I don't think he uses the adjective reactionary, but you get my point. You have to develop a reactionary form of collective organization capable of preventing that, right? Um, so, so mass meets mass, right? So what is it, what was it that Schmidt was trying to um, protect against? What, what was it about the left and what distinguished uh, the left from the right in Schmidt's understanding? How do we, I mean, because it seems to be both the fascists and the communists in this story are going beyond the rights of individuals and trying to form some sort of collective project and, and put the rights of this collective ahead of the rights of individuals in order to up, upend the status quo on both the right and the left. Right. So both are mm -hmm. in that yeah. sense, fascist. If that's mm -hmm. what, if we're using that as a definition of fascism. Well, no, I, 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 like I'm not, you know, I'm not, again, what I would characterize as fascism is what he's describing the reaction to that as being right. Okay. Uh, All right. So, um, but the reaction to that, so so fascism is when you try to stop the supersession of liberal bourgeois rights and in the name of socialism or on the left. Fasc but parad but but, paradoxically, have to supersede it in order to, you know, uh, so by by creating your own version of the same thing. By creating a collective, yeah, mass form. Right. Right. A reactionary so, mass form. Yeah. So what is the difference between a fascist mass form or a collectivization? along fascist lines and a collectivization along socialist lines? Well, I mean, I think that, you know, um, and we could get into talking about uh, Schmidt's period. I mean, I think it's pretty well established that, um, mm. you know, his view of sort of the sovereign as the one who decides uh, in the last instance is intimately, uh, you know, bound up with Hitler's use and abuse of emergency powers, right, in Germany in the 1930s, right? He was mm. sort of the crown jurist of the Third Reich. Um, but I think that, you know, again, um, if we are uh, looking at this, you know, I think that what really separates the, uh, the fascist organization, again, is that it's something that uh, emerges contra the organization of the working class, right? Um, you know, and contra the political projects of the working class. Now, you know, I mean, in some contexts, it might be a response to uh, different kinds of progressive class formations, Right. You know, uh, potentially involving peasants and this kind of thing. But to sort of simplify, right, we could say that it emerges as a reaction to the working class. And, you know, I think that traditionally, right, you would say that there's a very, very strong link with the petit bourgeois. Right. Um, so that, you know, a lot of the people who supported Nazism, for example, they were not. Um, I mean, they had some urban workers. I mean, Trotsky observes that, for example, but that it was more, um, you know, small shop owners in the countryside. Um, people would sort of be part of the middle class and so on. Right. So I think that there's okay. a difference in, in class composition in that way and, and an interest because, you know, obviously the, the you know, I mean, um, you know, a socialist government or a communist government may have to contend with the existence of capital globally. Right. 
Um, but, you know, rather unambiguously, right, the goal of fascism is also to preserve uh, uh, capitalism, right? You know, I mean, there can be, there can be perhaps, perhaps the resorting, there can be a similar resort to forms of corporatism on both sides. But I think you can see that there's a very different, you know, ideological trajectory that underpins those. Right? So did Schmidt talk about the preservation of capitalism per se? Uh, and was that the aim of the fascists then to, I mean, it sounds to me like when you have a mass organization uh, that, that goes beyond liberal bourgeois individualism on the right, what distinguishes it from the left-wing version is whether or not the people who are organizing are uh, workers or not. If they are, if they're workers, then it's on the left, and if it's uh, if they're not workers, then it's on the right. If they're well, it's not a simple, capitalist. it's not a completely simple identity question. I mean, tendentially, I think that's what it is, right? Mm-hmm. But again, like you know, there have been socialist agendas, right, that have been supported by coalitions that are predominantly comprised of workers, right? Mm-hmm. You know, and I'm thinking here of China or something coming to mind, right. and they did. They did fight against, um, you know, both the Japanese who are fascist, um, as well as the, the nationalists, right? And Chiang Kai-shek's Chiang, uh, Chiang Kai son, of course, served in the Wehrmacht <laughs> before he came over to fight, fight the Japanese. So I'm not saying the Chinese nationalists were fascist, but they, they had some of those elements. So I, I don't mm-hmm. want to say that, it, that it's strictly speaking a question of workers, but I think, I think tendentially that's the, that's the pattern we tend to see okay. in terms of, you know, the demographic that's advancing that political agenda. So it's not um, so you could have a workers organization that was run by uh, the ultimate sovereign um, as long as that that uh, sovereign was working um, and and had his power and authority or her power and authority uh, in the name of the working class uh, and whether or not he or she was working class, it would be a left wing formation. I mean, like obviously, this is a very, very this is this is a very interesting question, right? I mean, I just want to remind you, yeah. I am playing Socrates here. This is sure, well, all sure. I'm yeah. doing yeah. is asking you the questions that come up from your answers. I'm not, I'm not, I don't have a vision in mind as I, I sure, I'm sure. once developing maybe. But I mean, I think that you know, uh, as Engels used to say, the proof is in the pudding, right? And so you know, I mean, if you're dealing with you know a very inquit coalition, you know, especially in countries which don't have rich traditions of political democracy and this kind of thing, right? You know, if it's a, a violent class conflict, I don't think it's surprising for power to become centralized in the hands of certain people or certain committees, right? I don't mm-hmm. think that's ever good. Like, I don't think it's a good thing. Right? Mm-hmm. I think it happens. You know, um, it's always indicative of a certain kind of failure. But I think we can see that it happens, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but you know, I don't think that uh, you know. Insofar as the the causes being championed and the results being achieved, right, you know, by said group, right, are consonant, um, you know, with the agenda of socialism um, and with the demands of those social classes, um, then I think that one has to say that, well, in a way, there is, you know, there is a kind of de facto democracy which exists within that because there is an effective representative function being executed, right? Um, you know, now now if the agenda, or if the if the policies were to diverge wildly from that, you know, then we could speculate about it being you know, some sort of truly perverse kind of formation, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but I think that, you know, um, that that consistency, right, to carry out an ideological agenda, right, you know, for the workers or for socialism, right, um, you know, I think it, it, it does attest to a certain kind of integrity uh, within the form of political organization we're discussing. Yeah. Right. So, um, I mean, the, the, uh, Hitler, um, he... Like was representative <laughs> of Hitler. 
<laughs> Hitler. I remember Hitler. You remember Hitler? I, you know, I, I found out recently. I, I did a little reading, and it turns out he was a real jerk. But um, and wow. I don't like that guy at all. Yeah. Just don't. But, do you wear? Uh, I know the Nixon shirt is ironic. Just don't. Don't start wearing a Hitler shirt. Ironically. No, I'm not going to push it too far. No, no. I'll just get a Kanye shirt. Um, <laughs> so, uh, yeah. No, Hitler was a jerk. But but he also, I think, claimed to be a representative of all of the classes in society and the will yeah. of the nation, right? Unlike a, a divine king who represented uh, the, some divine external authority, yeah. Hitler's authority yeah. did yeah. come from the people, mm-hmm. ultimately, right? Yeah. So um, he represented the, the, the will of the people, the true people, the, the master race, I guess. Uh, in in Germany, so uh, how do we distinguish between? Mm-hmm. Is it just a, a, the difference between representing all of the people and uh, as an undifferentiated mass, yeah. um, except to be differentiated along ethnic lines, um, as opposed to uh, representing strictly the working class? When you have that position of the sovereign authority that distinguishes between left and right. Sovereigns. I mean, just about any sovereign claims to represent all of the people, right? Like this is pretty universal, you know. That's, I don't that's think Mao respect. did. Mao didn't, right? I mean, he was sort of the sovereign, and he didn't represent guess, all the will of all the people. Have, he represented the will of the proletariat revolution. Um, well, the yeah, yeah, that, that, that would be another. But but Mao's quite sweet generis. But I mean, you know, you can argue that. You know, I mean, as much Stalin's as, as, the same way. Stalin did not represent the will of all the people. The, there mm-hmm. were problems within the people, and he represented the working class, the, the revolution. Yeah, um, but if you if you actually look at like their various speeches, like you'll find claims being made with respect to a general representative function, regardless of what people are doing, which mm-hmm. which get you know, and you'll find other claims too. But this kind of gets me to my point, right? Which is that um, you know, it's not it wouldn't be so much a matter of what someone says, right? I mean, it's easy enough to say, well, I represent all people, right? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, you really have to look at what people do. I mean, so if you look at a state like Nazi Germany, um, you know, if you look at uh, the repression of organized labor, if you look at, you know, the massive profits that were engendered on that basis, right, by people close to the regime, right? If you look at the relentless ethnic oppressions, um, if you look at the stamping out of the left, right? Um, and, and I think relentless ethnic oppressions is an understatement, of course, given what we know about that period. Um, you know, if you look at, you know, the uh, invasion of, of other nations without regard in the least for international law, right, let alone having some kind of emancipatory agenda. Um, you know, I mean, I think that, uh, you know, these are things that really, really contravene, right, um, you know, any kind of progressive agenda. But I mean, that just goes back to to what the nature of fascism is and what it, what its class base originates in. Right? Now, you said progressive agenda, which is um, interesting, uh, is because the in you know the the progressivist movement has been in the United States anyway was sort of opposed to socialism. It was a way in which uh, the state could ameliorate or mitigate the troubles within a capitalist society without having to overturn capitalism, without having a socialist project take hold. So, um, would the progressives? Working on a collective level through the state to suppress socialism, be fascist. So here, here is here is here is really where we get, I think, to the crux of what we want to discuss. Yeah, right. Um, because mm-hmm. I I listened to I listened to Chris Catrone the other day, mm-hmm. uh, and oh, 
it was kind of weird. Like, so Catron, he seemed to, on one hand, he has this, you know, sort of very platypus thesis that's influenced by, you know, Pistone and, and so on, um, where he'll, he'll, you know, he'll say, well, everything uh, is kind of, you know, any kind of corporatism that's executed by the state, right? You're saying that he was implying sort of this is all fascism, right? Mm-hmm. You know, um, you know, and then on the other hand, he turns around and says, well, China, the CCP is, is maybe the last fascist state. Right. Um, but then in other debates we've had with him, like he'll claim like neoliberalism is not a hard rupture with, you know, Keynesian dirigism, right? Because the state's still very involved <clears throat> in the organization of the economy. So I don't, I don't really know. Right. Um, you know, is it the case that, that, you know, every modern government up to and including neoliberal governments is fascist, you know, or is it the case that China is the last standing representative of this? I mean, I think there are some things, um, in his thought that would be good for him to clarify. Um, but, uh, I also think that uh, it's kind of interesting. Like there was one part of, um, and I'm gonna, I'm actually gonna. It's funny because you you call me the contemporary Stalinist, but I'm actually gonna defend Trotsky a little bit here because um, mm-hmm. I am eclectic, you know. Um, mm-hmm. But uh, at one point, Catrone, he said, "Well, you know, we should take seriously the fact that in the early part of the 20th century, uh, you know, uh, social democracy or dirigism was what you know Marxists called fascism." Right. And then he gives the example of, uh, you know, um, Roosevelt being referred to as fascist when he ran for the U.S. election and his opponent being uh, Mm -hmm. referred to as social fascist, I think. Mm -hmm. Um, And this is actually really interesting, right? Because, you know, of course, Platypus, I guess, is supposed to be like this avowedly anti-Stalinist organization, you know, this like study of Trotsky's thought. But like I was listening to that and I think like he can correct me if I'm wrong or he can correct me if I'm wrong. But I think what he's talking about is the Stalinist thesis of social fascism. This was a thesis that was that was uh, developed and and propagated by Stalin in this time, partly because of the competition, right, or the threat that was felt to be posed. Right, well, I d- I would say that that Stalinist critique of the Social Democrats had if it, the the tricky thing with imminent critique is that you uh, you often start by agreeing with your opponent, right? <laughs> <laughs> so. Um, so I would say that that was probably cr- in many ways correct. Um, the question for me is to what degree are the, was Stalinism itself uh, markedly different from FDR's America or, or, yeah. or Mussolini's Italy. Um, you know, the, 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 the postone view is that um, the Fordist period imposed similar uh structures around the world on many different nations in many different forms with different ideological justifications and that yeah that looking at the similarities between fdr's america and uh mussolini's italy is uh justified yeah i mean i certainly understand like and we've talked about this before like the idea of like the mediation of society by abstract labor you know, um, I feel that it elides very, very significant differences in terms of um, public and private capital and like overall political trajectory. Dear God, even like the position of the working class, right? You know, it's like if you look at places like, um, you know, Russia and China, at times the working class enjoyed enormous amounts of power, right? Just like, you know, in China, right, in the 70s, just like fuck off from work for like a week because your wife's sick, right? Like whatever, just like show up and read the paper for an hour, you know, very different situation. So I just think you can't sweep all those differences under the rug. I mean, that's my position on that. But what I want to say about this this thing is it's interesting that 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 Catrone goes toward this uh, this this Stalinist line, right, of social fascism, right? The idea that all corporatism, 
you know, all, uh, you know, sort of class collusion is automatically fascist. And this to me is, re it's a really good example of, you know, and I'm not saying there's not like a semblance of truth. Like, of course you can say, well, there's some kind of corporatist, you know, organization, which is similar. But like, I think in reality, people are capable of differentiating these things. Like to me, it's a really good example of like theory brain, right? Um, or I guess what Mao used to call book worship, right? Um, because, you know, if you look at, uh, if you look at a regime that basically attempts to placate the left, right, you know, having some kind of cooperation with labor unions, left-wing organizations, potentially bringing them into government in some capacity, um, you know, pass, passing crucial reforms, right, to, uh, you know, increase the value of labor, um, you know, uh, social insurance and so on, right? Um, you know, I mean, we can say that maybe in, in the last instance that is, you know, contrary to the, you know, maybe you can argue, well, this obstructs the construction of socialism. But, mm -hmm. but whether it does or whether it doesn't, most people are capable of differentiating between that and like the violent oppression of the left, right? Like those are, those are just different responses to that, right? Mm -hmm. So along these lines, right? Like Trotsky actually wrote about this, right? Um, and Trotsky actually, you know, strongly disagreed, right? Um, with the thesis of social fascism, right? Uh, he, you know, he saw that there was potentially a need to collaborate, right? Between communists and social democrats to stave off the fascist threat, right? Um, you know, and he very, very clearly uh, references, you know, police and military uh, processes of oppression, right? It's being central to the identity of what fascism is, right? Mm -hmm. um, you know, and, and I think that, you know, even, you know, I think even at, you know, um, it's well known, I think that it was the German Communist Party that was the most vehement, right? Kind of in the advancement of the thesis of social fascism and that that mm -hmm. um, impeded forms of collaboration that might have stopped the rise of Hitler, right? Mm -hmm. So it's sort of infamous um, in that way. Um, but even at the time, I mean, that thesis really struggled for credibility because, again, if you look at this stuff in the most basic way, right, it's like those aren't the same thing, right? You know, I mean, like, I, I think Lenin, there's something Lenin likes to say sometimes, right, where he's like, uh, you know, uh, you know, uh, he, you know, he who says too much says nothing at all. Right? <laughs> like, if you're just going to make that, if you're just going to make that any kind of corporatist organization, well, what are we left with it to talk about fascism, right? Mm -hmm. um, and, and, and that's why it kind of, that's why it kind of puzzled me because on one hand, you know, Catrone goes toward this, this, I consider what I consider to be quite a Stalinist and, and incorrect uh, definition, though, though, to be fair, Moscow does drop it, you know, at such time as it becomes expedient to drop a few years later. Um, but uh, Catrone goes toward this very expansive definition of, of uh, what fascism would be, right? Um, Dirigist corporatism. Um, but then at the same time, right, describing the Chinese Communist Party as the last fascist state, right? Which is like a really, really peculiar statement. You know, particularly when, uh, you know, we're in a world where we have all different kinds of parties like, uh, you know, BJP in India, you know, or, or parties like, uh, you know, the National Front in France, which are parties, right, even if they don't govern, he said party, right, mm -hmm. um, you know, which are either in power or vying for power, right, you know, and have uh, an explicitly reactionary character and, and all advocate, you know, let's say more open forms of repression toward the left. So one of the things that we're talking about that, that I'm th I'm hearing now is that the degree to which the state can be um, controlled uh, or determined by the by civil society, by the voters, um, is maybe the degree to which uh, you're escaping from the clutches of fascism. In a fascist state, there is no electoral mechanism, in fact, that can dislodge the, the power of the of the current state ideology, apparatus, administration, so on. 
I mean, I think that I think that the reality is when it comes to this, you know, there can be very, very fascistic governments which manifest in the context of, you know, um, you know, some form of electoral transparency existing. Right. Like I said about uh, the United States. Um, but I think that, you know, if you look at what Schmidt was saying, right, about uh, the need to com combat sort of, uh, you know, left organization, I think that usually in order to uh, achieve the support necessary to actually, uh, you know, dispel with democracy itself, right, um, you have to be able to rationalize in, in terms of the threat being prominent enough, right? Mm -hmm. um, so I think one of the issues like we have in the United States is like, you know, um, it's not lost on me that, you know, Trump coming to power, right, and the sort of right authoritarianism has strengthened itself in a time where there has been, um, you know, a certain kind of resistance in the United States, right? Whether it's, you know, Occupy, uh, or whether it's, uh, you know, um, we see the Sanders movement kind of coalescing at the same time, right? You know, and, and these are in many ways, you know, I mean, with the, the Sanders thing, for example, this is the most organized the American left has been since the Great Depression, right? Um, so that's significant. Um, but at the same time, like, it's not the same as Germany and the Weimar Republic, right? In terms of like the existential threat, right? Like of a communist revolution happening any day. Right. So I think it's hard to actually um, because that, that was the thing. Right. Like if you look at, you know, if you look at a place like Germany or you look at a place like like Italy uh, with Mussolini, you know, they were able to actively support. They were able uh, fascist groups were able to actively attract the support of the bourgeois because they were able to persuade them. Look, you have to give us power. Right. Because if you don't, if you don't support this authoritarian agenda, then the left's going to take power. Right. You know, the communists and the socialists are going to take power. Right. Um, and I think in America, it's been harder to make that case. Right. Which exp explains, you know, how relatively slow, you know, segments of the American bourgeois. I mean, some have. Right. We see like Elon Musk now is like a fan of Trump. <laughs> you know, like um, some of them are, are coming around to it. You know, it seems to be getting stronger. Um, but we do see that. And it seems to be getting stronger as America itself becomes more destabilized. Right. Um, but we do see that it's been a comparatively slow process. Right. That actual gestation. And I think it just, you know, so I think in a way, it, you know, and interestingly, I think that the limits of the left in a certain way, uh, are also, you know, the limits of the far right, right? That is to say that, you know, if we were actually more threatening, then I think it would be much easier to make that case, right, for the consolidation hmm. of power. Hmm. Um, so what was it that the, um, that Schmidt saw the left doing that, does, that required uh, uh, the establishment to go beyond liberal democracy in terms of, so that in order to defend, defend against it. What was the Schmidt's conception of the left and the left's project? Um, well, you know, I'm not, I'm not a Schmidt scholar, but again, my understanding of it is that he saw them as kind of cheating, right? He saw them as kind of breaking the rules, right? Of liberal democracy, right? You know, because, um, you know, and it's really suggestive to talk about, uh, you know, organized labor in this way. Right. Because like, you know, if if you have just a, just a bunch of individualized labors, right, as we know very well, and as the experience of post Fordism has, Fordism has been instructive in this way, um, it's very, very hard. Right. Without collective organization to actually improve your working conditions. Right. Mm -hmm. um, you know, so under those conditions, if we just look at, at the front of organized labor. Right. You know, it's relatively easily easy for capitalist companies to you know continue to make high profits and exploit labor and all this. Right. Mm -hmm. um, but when workers actually get together and resist that collectively. Right. I mean, that challenge can can become significant enough. Right. And, and consider the problems that Weimar Germany was facing. 
in the 20s. Why was that considered cheating? Well, it's considered cheating. It's considered, I mean, you know, it's considered cheating because, well, it may be legal to form these organizations. The idea uh, is that it goes against, uh, you know, the notion of like the atomized worker, right? You know, negotiating for their wages. But doesn't right? the, or the, or the individual, doesn't or the the individual fran- voting? Wouldn't the enfranchisement right? of voters likewise go against um, this idea of the atomized worker? Or wouldn't, I mean, isn't even the uh you know taxation and the in the form of and the formation of a state and wouldn't municipal projects also go against this idea of the atomized i mean in a sense isn't the capitalist firm yeah you know a collectivization of work and you know and going beyond just the the atomized worker only producing i mean to to we'd all have to be robinson crusoe living on an island growing our own food and, and, and we wouldn't have a servant either, (laughs) you know, like um, to, to really live up to the Schmidtian ideal of everyone just being completely independent. Uh, So, so it it seems to me that the idea of, of collective power is like already built into liberal democracy. It can't, it's not. Well, yeah, of course, of course, of course, of course, course, Doug, it's like, you know, it's like this, you know, I mean, this is, it's an interesting definition I find because it's like, it's schematic and it can help us understand, you know, what fascism is. Mm-hmm. Um, but of course, if we subject this to the test of reality, it's like, you know, this whole thing about, you know, like atomized individuals, right? Like, does that include women who are like working in the home and like still couldn't vote in many jurisdictions, right? Or like, mm-hmm. you know. Um, yeah, they're more atomized all... than anyone. They live well, out or, in the or, suburb. Or, 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 yeah, well, or maybe less in a way too, right? Vis-a-vis in facing the liberal system as wage workers. Right. In a way, like they're not they're not facing the liberal system as wage workers in that way. So it's a different kind of thing. Um, well, they don't it, have know, the wage worker. They don't have the wage relationship in order to, that, that they can collectively organize around. Or, or the, the only way they organize is as opposed to their husbands. It's a, they have yeah. feminism to to organize against the system. Um, but go on. I mean, well, back I, in I, the day, obviously, now there are many women who are wage workers, but uh, most in, or the majority. Uh, well, okay, so, so obviously Schmidt's definition itself, I guess what I'm getting at, right, to try to get at it, a, you know, more clearly, Schmidt's definition itself hinges on this sort of, you know, I think myth of, you know, um, and, and it's not to say that there isn't like a kernel of truth in it, but it hinges on this myth of, uh, you know, early capitalism being something that's just kind of like, you know, harmonious, right, you know, in which you, just a society, just a society of individuals, <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. just all, we're all good, we're all just doing our own thing. Right? What, works. what Proudhon right. wanted to achieve, yeah. the Schmidt thought had already been accomplished, and everything that <clears throat> was wrong was uh, some infringement from uh, uh, an, an alien force upon a system that that was already functioning. Is that? Well, I think I think I think he was also, but I think that you know part of the paradox of Schmidt's thought, like, is it's not that it's not that you know in the context of emergency, the role of the sovereign may have to become more emphatic, but he also you know, I mean, I mean, he also did understand that there always is a a, a hard authoritarian kernel of power that exists, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so, so I think to try to interpret it a little more sympathetically, we would say that like what he's saying is that you know there was this society of individuals interacting that way, right? Uh, that there was uh, a hard kernel of power, but that d- didn't have to show its face, so to speak, in the same way, right? Because it hadn't yet had to confront the organization of the left. Okay, so we've been talking for uh, really officially talking 
for just around 40 minutes, a little less. And I, I, I feel like in the next five minutes, I want to close off the first half of our conversation. So before we do, like, I want to give you an opportunity to directly express your critique of Catron's definition of fascism. And then I'm want to, and then I want to maybe respond to it, and then we can talk about something, something uh, uh, to the side of it, but still um, on the same topic, a little bit more in a more freewheeling fashion. And I will drop my Socrates act for the second half. <laughs> so, because sure. all I've been doing is trying to push you for solid definitions the whole time. Yeah. And so, yeah, go ahead and what was what is your in a few sentences like what is your critique of Catron's definition of fascism? Well, I mean, my, my critique of it is that, you know, and, and, and like, this isn't even something that, that Pistone says, right? Um, because his real claim, right, is that, you know, the social mediation of labor, abstract labor, what we're talking about, mm-hmm. this is like capitalism. Um, but I think that, you know, when it comes to Catrone, and I've said this before, I think the basic problem here, and again, going to back to Trotsky's critique of social fascism, which is what I'm going to draw on here, um, you know, is that, uh, you know, fascism is something um, that emerges uh, or, or is responsive to, uh, you know, progressive developments within a society, mm-hmm. right? Um, you know, and that, you know, there's a sense in which it's violently hostile or repressive toward those, right? It is not a form of, uh, it's not about placating or appeasing or working with those elements of society, right? Um, mm-hmm. And I think that, again, if you if you align yourself with that definition, things just become so hazy in general, right? You know, and then you get in the situation where you're calling the Chinese Communist Party fascist, right? Which is something else we should talk about. Okay. So I would say, uh, to respond to that, I would say that um, when to, what Catron was trying to point to was that when you begin to use the state as a mechanism to mediate and placate and overcome the contradictions that arise from capitalist society, um, you and rather than attempt to create the dictatorship of the proletariat to overcome those contradictions, you are already on the road towards what we'll call fascism, because you will always rely on uh, the authority and the uh, the mandate on violence within the state, um, the exclusive mandate on violence the state has, to overcome contradictions in the final analysis. Now you can do that to greater or lesser degrees. Um, but even, uh, the Nazis were working with, uh, the people, uh, if the people were, you know, sufficiently and narrowly defined, right. You know, they were, there were aspects of what the Nazis were doing that was meant to, help everyday people overcome problems in their lives to, to put it like a, in a more immediate sense. And one I know a little bit better, um, the, in the nineties, the, uh, spending on the police and the increasingly draconian and extreme jail sentences that would, or prison sentences that were, uh, given to specifically the, uh, black population in America, um, was something that not only was meant to help uh, white Americans with the, their problems around crime, but also was supported by a strata and a, and a majority strata within the black population. Um, so 
it's not so much as to whether or not the state is opposing the people or uh, working with the people, I think, but rather it's how the problems are trying to be solved. Um, and that, that defines the difference between a fascist or Bonapartist or statist solution. Okay, because yeah, like you just you just threw in three words and you just trampled up like the whole 20th century into fascism. You know, <laughs> do you but don't you think there's a risk to this? Like what you're doing, like when you say like Bonapartism, because that, yeah, like, that that is like you know, one thing that Catron was right about, right, is that you know, and, and maybe he could have dwelt a bit more upon the degree to which um, you know, Lenin himself was actually an influence on this, because Lenin's an influence on Hitler, but also on Roosevelt indirectly. In terms of the kind of derishism coming out of war, well, what what do you what is the big risk that that I'm taking? Well, the big the big risk is that you're actually you know you're putting yourself in a position where you know you're describing like 20th century politics you know to core, right? You know, in governments that have very very diverse kinds of class compositions, you know, and very very different pol policies toward the left, and you're just you're just calling them all fascists. Right. And like, you know, what, but, risk, what, would that, what, what do would I, what am I risking there? What's well, the how, you know, like what, 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 we were not going to have an actual definition of fascism if you do that. Right. We're, we're really, we're not going to have one that's going to be specifically able to be applied towards what I'm describing. Why not? We can right. have a definition well, of, ocean, was very of the ocean and then every, and then every variety of fish in the ocean is still swimming in the ocean. Okay, I don't I like see this. why we can't have a definition of fascism that would include most of the political structures in the second half of the 20th century, let's say. Uh, as fascist and not and not have that uh, that uh, definition be adequate. I mean, you're Arist just Aristotle, Aristotle, Aristotle over here. If you enjoyed this conversation, please do consider supporting us on Patreon. Our patrons help to make sure that Sublation Media can continue to provide interviews, videos, books, and articles that are critical of the left from the left. If you are tired of remaining stuck within bourgeois ideologies and politics, help us sublate them both.